Today is the last day of the podcast for our study of Matthew for the season. We'll finish with chapter 17 today and resume, God willing, in September to begin to finish the study starting at chapter 18. As we read in chapter 16 last week, Jesus' words to his disciples at the end of the chapter, where he said, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew is now going to show us how this happens. We're going to see how that unfolded for three of his disciples, but some of the others would see him coming in his kingdom as well before they died. We know that did happen in different instances. Some of them saw the gospel spread. But today, we're, we're going to concentrate on how these three disciples saw the kingdom. The kingdom was among them. For instance, earlier in chapter 12, when the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, Jesus responded, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This was true. King Jesus was in their midst, displaying his sovereign power. So before we continue, let's just pray and ask the Lord to open our hearts and our eyes to what we're going to be studying. Father God, we thank you so much for the privilege. This is our last morning together. And we do thank you for the privilege that we've had these past weeks of studying your word and how rich a treasure it is. So we pray this morning that you'll open our minds and our hearts and help us to really take in what your words meant, what your power showed. We ask this all in your name. Amen. And so we saw, as I said, when Jesus responded to the Pharisees, when they accused him of casting out the demons by the power of Beelzebub, he responded, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That was true. He was in their midst, displaying his sovereign power. But if we look closely at the word kingdom, there's another meaning. The word used for kingdom in the Greek language was basileia, and it had two connotations. Here, I'm going to get a little technical. <laughs> when the word basileia was used, it was often a metonym. And a metonym is a word, name, or expression used as a substitute for something else with, with it, which is closely associated with it. For example, if I say, I wonder how Ottawa will increase our taxes this year. Ottawa is a metonym for the federal government. And so right here, this word, uh, the Greek word basileia, was not just used sometimes for his kingdom, meaning his kingdom, his reigning kingdom, but it was also used for the, the meaning of royal majesty or regal splendor. And in this case, the word would be used to mean Jesus' kingliness or splendor, rather than his literal earthly reign. So if you substituted kingly splendor, the sentence would be, you will not see death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingly splendor. So that's what happens exactly a week later. So now I'd like to begin by reading verses 1 and 2. And we'll look at that for a while. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Jesus led them up a high mountain. Now, the mountain is not named in the scripture. It wasn't Mount Tabor, because we know that was a place of false foreign worship. If you would look at Hosea 5 and 1, you see that. 
It was made clear that's what the place was. And besides, Mount Tabor would have been out of the way. Some believed it to be Mount Hermon, which is 7,000 feet higher and closer to, this, to Caesarea Philippi or Mount Mirren. Yet that's another mountain. Mountains do play a very important part in the scripture. But here the name of the mountain is insignificant. But what is significant is Jesus went up the mountain to pray. Each time he drew away from it, the crowds, he, he prayed. But he had something more he wanted to accomplish with this trip. Now, why would Jesus take only these three and not the whole bunch? These three men were the closest disciples of Jesus. They'd been the ones who witnessed the raising of Jairus' daughter, and they'd be the ones to later accompany him in the Garden of Gethsemane, as well as this incredible experience of what they were about to witness. They were the most familiar with Jesus. They understood him the best. They'd be able to confirm what they had witnessed to the other disciples. Because they were respected and trusted, they could most accurately relate what they'd seen on the mountain. Now, of course, you can imagine the results if all the disciples and the people had witnessed the transfiguration. The pressure would even be more on Jesus to become the political and military deliverer they expected the Messiah to be. As he was praying, he was transfigured before them. Can you imagine the brief display of divine glory? As I read this, I thought, how would I have responded? How would we have responded? Would we have felt more blessed than we do now? I sometimes think, oh, if I were among those who had been with Jesus and had witnessed what he did, I would have been so full of faith. But you know, I remembered the verse right from our Savior himself. That verse found in John 20 and 29, where Jesus said to Thomas, who needed proof, because you've seen me, do you now believe? Blessed are those who did not see me and yet believed in me. Now we know that blessed means happy, spiritually secure, or favored by God. And that's what you and I and anyone who upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ are when we respond in repentance and faith. Jesus had said something similar last week as we studied chapter 16 with Barb when Peter made his proclamation of who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Barb described the joy Jesus had at Peter's proclamation of faith and declares to Peter that this is a divine revelation from God to him and really to anybody today that confesses that Jesus is the Son of the living God. He had said to Peter, that did not come to you by flesh and blood. And yes, the message, the same message that came to you and I through witnesses, and the preaching of the word is how we heard. But the faith to believe it came from God. Those are Jesus' words to Peter, and we can apply them to ourselves. Now, I'm going to go back to that portion of Scripture later, at the end of our lesson, because I think there's a lot we can focus on to encourage our faith. But verse 2 says, Jesus changed into another form. The word is metamorpho, from which we get the word metamorphosis. Right before their eyes, Jesus reveals himself. His face, his clothing became as white as light. The light showed his glory and majesty, his splendor, his basileia. This led, God, this led John to write John 1.14. We saw or beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In his human form, his splendor was veiled. <coughs> but here for a brief moment on that mountain, he wanted his disciples to take a glimpse of who he was. That glimpse they were given will one day be seen by everyone when he comes in his full divine majesty and glory.
and power. The disciples would come to realize they were privileged to view something of his coming exaltation. Peter would also write of it in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 18. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. It said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard that voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Those who witnessed the transfiguration bore witness to it. For these disciples, there could now be no doubt, and they needed that confidence to know that he was God incarnate, and one day you and I are going to see him. But I have to say, have we seen him with the eye of faith? Are we sure? So now let's read verses 3 to 8. Follow along as I read. <coughs> and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Of all the godly characters to have appeared with Jesus, why these two? They had left this life in an unusual way. We know that Moses represented the law. He had delivered God's law to Israel. And the expectation was that a prophet like Moses would arise in the last days. And the Israelites were instructed in Deuteronomy 18, you must listen to him. Important words to remember. Now, Elijah represented the Old Testament prophets. And I'd just like to say a couple of things about the prophets here. These prophets in the Old Testament had specific purposes. They were God's mouthpiece or spokesman. They were called men of God. They were called servant of the Lord. They were also called his faithful messengers. And they were employed to deliver the messages of God. <clears throat> we'll see later how John the Baptist is called the Lord's messenger in Malachi 3 and 1. They boldly rebuked vice. <clears throat> they denounced political corruption, oppression, moral degeneracy, and they called for the people they spoke to to unite their day-to-day -day moral conduct with their religious observances. Much the same today for believers. They preached righteousness. In other words, put your money where your mouth is. You believe the scriptures? Obey them. And they spoke of future judgment or blessing, depending on how the covenant with God was kept. They recorded history, but not just history, a history that's redemptive, that God is the Lord of history and providence was controlling the issues and movements of history for a purpose. You know, I hear today the voices of those who are predicting what changes our world is going through with COVID, as though they can predict exactly how our economy and our freedoms and our rights are changing, as though theirs is the final voice. And yes, maybe some of what they say will happen. Maybe we are heading into Revelation 13. 
but many seem to forget who's in control of the nations. The prophets of old knew. With a united voice, all these prophets declared that the same purpose toward which all history is being directed is the establishment of the kingdom of God and his king and the sovereign reign and rule of God upon the earth. Isaiah had declared that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there's none besides me. I am Yahweh and there is none else. Another prophet, Zechariah, wrote, And Yahweh shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall Yahweh be one, and his name one. And so Elijah is representing these prophets there on the mountain, but he was significant in another way. If you remember, he left the earth in a very unusual manner, in a chariot of fire. And there were Old Testament ex expectations that he'd return before the Lord at the end as the herald of his coming. He and Moses, by their presence there, were affirming, This is the one of whom we testified all those years ago, the coming one. Everything we spoke about and accomplished and hoped for, this is him. And interestingly, they were talking with Jesus. In Luke 9 and 31, we know that they were talking specifically about Jesus' departure, which he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. That was his supreme objective of his ministry here on earth. The reason he came, he came to live that perfect life, to suffer and die in our place, and to rise again, to defeat death. So not only were Moses and Elijah there to reflect his glory, but to talk about what he was going to do, the divine plan. And when you read in Acts 2 and 23, you hear Peter stand on the day of Pentecost and deliver that incredible sermon. No wonder he could affirm the words, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that hymn that we sing sometimes at Easter, Up from the Gravy Rose. Death could not keep its sway, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose, like a mighty victor o'er his foes. He arose the victor of a vast domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. How could Peter keep from testifying? He was on the mountain. He heard these three talking about the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So we know that in some of the stories and accounts, it says that they went to sleep. Just how much he heard. But he knew. He'd been told before. Verse 4, we see Peter at his impulsive best. And I, I identify with him. Oh, my. It gives me hope when I look at Peter and how, how Christ was with him. How forgiving, how kind. But right away here he says in, in Luke 9.33, Luke, Dr. Luke adds a little comment as he describes it. He describes Peter not knowing what he said. Sounds like a doctor. Well, Peter wants to build three tents, one for each of them. In other words, let's just stay here and you stay here and you can avoid the death and the suffering and, and we'll just stay here. And, and um, he wasn't interested in thinking about how Jesus was going to accomplish his mission or how he would leave and then be coming back again. Now, Peter already showed he didn't want to consider this. And, and in chapter 16 and 22, he rebuked Jesus for talking about his dying and raising again. Peter had his own ideas and his own will rather than the Lord's. Now, if Peter can be that headstrong and even arrogant, and he'd been walking and living alongside Jesus, 
we need to ask ourselves, am I arrogant about what may be God's plan? Am I so deluded or obsessed with something that I can't even see what is so obvious? And even more problematic, after just declaring that wonderful confession that Christ is the Son of the living God, here he is planning to build three tents, thereby putting Moses and Elijah and Jesus on a par, on the same level. Only Christ is supreme, which is what they were talking about. And all the time God was overseeing this. So verse 5, it says, While Peter was still, I say, blathering on, full of his own ego and, and his own plans, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and the other two men fade away. There's Jesus only. Don't look to Moses or Elijah. They've done their job of pointing to Christ. And now a voice from the cloud says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. These were words God had spoken before at Jesus' baptism. In calling Jesus his beloved Son, God was declaring that they had a relationship of divine nature and of divine love. They had a relationship of mutual love, commitment, and identification. They were one in essence. And by saying, in whom I am well pleased, God was saying, I approve everything Jesus was and said and did. He is in perfect accord with my will and plan. In other words, if my son says he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, believe him. If he tells you on the third day he will rise again, believe him. If he says he'll come again in glory, believe him and live accordingly. Now, is this a good time for us to ask ourselves, do we believe him? Is he our hope? Do we look for his return? Are we living accordingly? Have we become so obsessed in focusing in on the daily count of cases of COVID and demanding our rights and forcing ourselves on others and saying, I don't need a mask and you don't need that mask? Is that what our commitment to Christ is all about? I'd love to hear a daily count, <laughs> but the count I'd love to know is who have become believers because of COVID in their desperation for answers have they been led to come to this one who alone can give life? Well, verses 6, 7, and 8 says they fall down. They knew they had stood in the presence of Almighty God. And I love the fact that Jesus, after his mighty display of splendor or basileia and majesty, spoke words of love and care. Get up. Don't be afraid. They get up and see Jesus only. Do we see Jesus only as our Savior? Do we listen when he says, don't be afraid? And he does say that through his word and through his spirit as we spend time with him in prayer and reading and meditation. What does his word tell us to think about? You know the verse, whatsoever things are, I'll let you finish. Well, they had just experienced a preview of what his second coming was to be like. He will come in great glory and enthronement as King of kings and Lord of lords. So let's continue on with verse 9 to 13. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that, that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly come, will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. As they're coming down the mountain, can you imagine him saying, wait till we tell everyone what we just saw? 
But right away, Jesus says, tell no one until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. See, he's telling them what's going to happen. Do you hear the echo of God, what God said from the cloud? Listen to him. So they had thought and hoped that this idea of suffering was over. But no, says Jesus, just as Elijah has come and suffered and was killed, so all the Son of Man, also also the Son of Man would suffer and die. But he didn't want them telling what they had seen till after he was dead and risen. Because when he rose from the dead, then and only then would people, when they heard all this, understand that he never came to conquer the Romans, but to conquer death. So now right away the questions come. To the Jews of Jesus' day, they would be familiar with the prediction that the Old Testament per person of Elijah would be the forerunner of the Messiah. In other words, he had to come before the Messiah. This was prophesied in Malachi 4, verse 5 which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter de destruction. So the disciples are confused. They had just seen Elijah standing on the mountain right next to Jesus and Moses, but Elijah didn't stay and didn't do anything. So is he not going to do what he's supposed to be doing? Is Jesus the Messiah, the one who is to bring in the day of the Lord? The disciples are asking Jesus, what does this mean? And he gives them an explanation, verse 11. He says, Elijah has come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. This Elijah-type figure has come in the presence of John, and through the message of John, the preaching of repentance, and those who responded to the message, the promised restoration has taken place. The Elijah prophesied by Malachi was not to be a reincarnation of the ancient prophet, but the explanation of who this was to be was given by an angel of the Lord to a priest named Zacharias. In Luke chapter 1, here is the account of the angel appearing to a priest named Zacharias. And you've probably read the story that the angel told Zacharias that his wife would give birth to a son, and he was to call him John. The angel describes who will be who he will be and what he will do. The angel said, He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He will go as a forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John would minister in much the same style and power as Elijah. That was why, if you read in John 1, 21, when they asked John, are you Elijah? He said, no. He realized they were asking, when they asked him that question, are you Elijah reincarnated? He also knew what motivated their questions, their unbelief, which became very obvious because they imprisoned him and then beheaded him. And so verse 13, finally the disciples actually know what Jesus meant. They got it. So verse 14 to 20, let's continue on. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. 
Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they descend the mountain, there is a crowd. Among the crowd are the other nine disciples, and a man so desperate for his son, his only boy is what we read in Luke 9. He describes the condition of his boy, and he pleads to Jesus, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And here we see Jesus making a statement, How long am I to be with you? He was grieved at the blindness and faithlessness of God's people, especially his disciples whom he had chosen and taught and given unique power and authority. And he says, Bring him here, and he heals him. The demon has no power against Jesus, but he gives one last attempt, and the account in Mark 9 describes it. Finally, the demon leaves the boy, and he is restored. And then the disciples ask the question, why couldn't we drive it out? And I think the operative word here is we. And Jesus answers, because of the littleness of your faith. In some other translations, there's also a verse that says this one won't come out by prayer, needed to come with prayer. When these things are going well with the disciples, they found it easy to trust the Lord. But as soon as things became uncertain, their faith wavered. Now in Mark's account, as I said, in verse 29 of chapter 9, he said to the disciples, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Had the disciples become so sure of themselves that just went ahead and because of their past successes were trusting in their own strength? Aren't you and I the same? When things are going well and we have the necessities of life and everything's going fine, our faith is great and strong. And when we are in need of something, when circumstances put us in a serious position, how does our faith hold up? Do we doubt? The disciples had to wait till Jesus came down from the mountain in order for faith to be renewed. Sometimes the Lord causes us to wait, and in that waiting, no matter what it's for, we can pause and look at the situation objectively and rest in him while we wait. Our faith develops as we trust and wait on him. In this little description of faith, we see how something starts small, a little seed, a little mustard seed, and it grows. Is that how your faith is developed? I think of just how little I knew when at 16 years old I heard the gospel and believed. And now 60 years later, my faith is still developing. I'm still learning. But I can say with the hymn writer, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living. Whatever men may say, I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. Now you know the chorus. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. There are lyrics to another verse, which goes something like this. In all the world around me, I see his loving care. And though my heart grows weary, I never will despair. I know that he is leading through all the stormy blast. The day of his appearing will come at last. It will come. But till then our faith becomes, but till when our faith becomes sight, our faith is not to be in self-reliance, but a humble faith in Jesus for power over sin. Mustard seed faith is persistent faith, persistent in prayer and persistent in meditating on the word. I like the way Douglas O'Donnell puts it. He says, describing faith, quote, 
A faith that takes no confidence in itself, a faith that does not judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers, a faith that looks to the powerful Son of God and to him alone, and a faith, quite simply, that kneels and prays, Lord, have mercy. Now, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. As if to drive, really drive home the fact that he was facing suffering and death and doing so willingly, Jesus again describes and foretells what he's facing. The disciples needed this reminder that his suffering and death were part of God's plan, and it certainly didn't catch Jesus or his heavenly Father by surprise. It was the reason God sent his Son to earth, and that he willingly came. And so let's read verse 24 to the end. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the fish first. The first fish, that's hard to say, the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So Jesus and his disciples journey back to Capernaum. And when they arrive, it's tax time. And the tax collectors are there. Now, Rome has allowed the Jews to collect a tax of two drachmas per male, so the Jews could keep up the temple. Judaism required many practices. The tax paid the priest's salaries, their sacred attire, the wood, the wine, the oil, the flour, the candles, the knives, all for the sacrifices. And this tax was usually collected by Passover. So these tax collectors ask Peter, does your teacher not pay the tax? The way they ask this makes you wonder, did they think Jesus was above paying tax because he claimed to be the Messiah? Was this another way to bait him? Now excuse the pun. But Peter says to Peter, but Jesus says to Peter, go fish. And then we see this miracle. At that particular time, in that particular part of the water, it was a particular fish that would have in its mouth a shekel, which covered the two drachma tax for the two men. Jesus says to Peter, Whom do the kings of the earth collect taxes from? And Peter says, From strangers, not sons. As kings did not tax their own sons, technically, Jesus, as God's son, was exempt. But to avoid offending and to keep the law, Jesus tells Peter, pay the tax. But you know, the day is going to come when that tax would be null and void. It did come, because as his representative, he ultimately paid the price that the temple sacrifices pointed to. His sacrifice cut the temple curtain in two, and all that the temple had represented was replaced by the one who is the very temple of the living God, Emmanuel, God with us. I'd just like to read something right now. Uh, and this is from a little meditation by John MacArthur covering this particular verse. He said, Christians must exercise civil obedience willingly, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. The early church experienced increased persecution and oppression from the Roman Empire 
Yet the New Testament letters commanded believers to be loyal, law-abiding, helpful citizens. They could easily have mounted an organized opposition to corruption or slavery, but the Spirit made slavery-related terms into symbols of Christian dedication and submission. Those words like slave, bond slave, bondage. God also providentially used the empire to spread the Greek language so his New Testament could be understood far and wide, as well as building an extensive quality network of roads over which his messengers could carry the gospel. Rome's relative peace also allowed the apostles to travel safely. These factors all sovereignly converged to set the ideal stage for Christ's earthly ministry. So even though things may seem out of control and beyond hope right now, the sovereign Lord of the ages is working all things in accordance with his eternal purpose, turning them to his desired ends. What kind of peace and contentment can this give you and I in trolling times? I think as we look back and we, we see what happened, we can look forward. We know his plans are active. I said back at the beginning of the lesson that these disciples were going to have such a foregone conclusion that this was the Son of God. But then I asked, how would we have felt if we had been on the mountain? Jesus tells us something very important. We're blessed because the faith that had been given to us is a divine revelation. And there's another verse in 1 Peter that I'd like to just read to you. 1 Peter 1, 8 to 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So our faith, what is it composed of? We just saw how Peter and his two companions now knew that they stood in the presence of Almighty God. As we stand in his presence, and make no mistake, we are daily standing and walking and sitting in his presence. As believers, we have spiritual tension, so to speak, because on the one hand, we have a reverential fear as we think about his holiness and his righteousness, but we are also amazed at his grace and his mercy, especially as it applies to our undeserving faith and the forgiveness of our sins and the knowledge we have of him. As we walk in obedience, we experience the comfort of his presence. But there are times in our life when we know we haven't been obedient or walking with him as closely, and then the doubt and the fears appear. And it should, I think, because God loves us and he's going to allow sadness and anxiety in order to bring us back to him. How is COVID affecting our faith? I think as we read portions of scripture, verses such as Romans 8, which is a wonderful chapter to remind us of who we are in Christ, we can ask God to refresh us in our spirit and cause us to think deeply about how blessed we are, about God's everlasting love, how we can ask him to renew us and cause us to refocus on who we are. So let me finish by reading Romans 8, verse 18. Verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That glory will be revealed just like it was to these disciples, only in, in a more fuller way. And then I'm just going to read verse 31 and 32, and then we'll close in prayer. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So I pray that as you read these verses and as you've studied this chapter, you've seen the power of God. But more deeply, I just pray that each day your faith will grow and be full. So let's pray now and then we'll finish our lesson. Father God, thank you for this time. What a privilege these men had. But oh, Father, what a privilege we have to walk and talk with you, to to pray to you, to listen as your word speaks to our hearts. I just pray for all the women who are listening to this lesson. Oh, Father, bless them, the homes, the little ones. Help us as women to live daily for you, to trust you, and no matter what our future holds, to know that that future is in your hands. So we thank you, Father, for all your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.